Welcome to Transformation Simulation, the podcast about agile transformations and personal transformations. Here are your hosts, fraternal agile twins, only separated by four months, 100 pounds, meat consumption, and different parents, Alicia Yannick and Nathan Chawilawu Ashe. So in this episode, episode seven, the team finishes their first sprint. We have a manager show up to the sprint review and take a little bit of a traditional managerial approach. Should we listen in? The team meets at the end of the first sprint. They are excited about what they learn and accomplish. They are also able to see where they can improve to get better results next time. The manager, however, has questions about the effectiveness of the Scrum since the team did not meet 100% of their goals. I guess this is a wrap, huh? It's a wrap. We just finished our first sprint. Congratulations, team. Let's go over. Scrum Master, before we get started, if it's okay, I'd like to... Please, go right ahead, product owner. Thank you all for committing your energy, time, and expertise to help us get to this point. It seems that just a few weeks ago, we were trying to figure out how to work, and now we have just finished our first sprint. I want to acknowledge the teamwork, perseverance, and ability to accept this change. Glad to be here with all of you. Thanks for that acknowledgement, product owner. Cheers to us. Cheers. Are there drinks? <laughs> Not at this meeting, mate. How about we discuss how to celebrate at the end of the last sprint review? Sounds like a plan. Team, we are now officially in our first sprint review meeting. The purpose of our meeting is to review our performance within our sprint. So in this meeting, we'll review the work that we committed to completing and compare it to what was completed. We'll also review defects, bugs, etc., and the reasons for them. So, hello everyone. Sorry I'm late. Hello manager. You're just in time. This is the beginning of our sprint review. So let's start by taking a look at the sprint burndown chart. We didn't finish all of our stories, but our burndown chart doesn't burn all the way down. However, it does tell a story. Looking at the chart, you can see that we made good progress until the last three days of the sprint. We had three stories that didn't move at all during this time. There ended up being a lot of details in those stories that we didn't discuss in refinement or planning. The missing details led to some refactoring of Dev1's code again. From a testing perspective, we would not have been able to test or verify those stories even if the development tasks were completed. How do those stories even make it into the sprint? At the time that we all reviewed and discussed the stories, we had an understanding. The stories were pulled in according to that understanding. Well, how do we prevent this from happening again? Manager, let's hold that question until we get a little further along in the sprint review. We have an event that answers questions like the one you posed. This is probably for the retrospective, but it seems we may need to have more detailed conversations on backlog refinement. I've noted that for our discussion in the retrospective. Team, overall, we attempted eight stories and we completed five stories. From our brief conversation, it appears we have ideas about our challenges with the missing three stories. How do you feel about this? I think we are off to a good start. I think we've learned a lot. This is our first real attempt at working in Scrum. I'm excited. We won't be successful with a 62.5% effective rate. 
completing 62.5% of your work is probably not something to be excited about. Manager, roughly 60% of effectiveness the first time we try something is good. I hope there wasn't an expectation that we'd be 100% successful on our very first spring. I don't think your people are perfect at most things the very first time they try them. We put a lot of effort into allowing you to explore Scrum. We have invested at least a couple months into adopting Scrum. We have a commitment to meet. Our customers are expecting us to deliver by a certain date. It doesn't even appear you can organize yourself well enough to do this work. Manager one, I understand your concerns. Thank you for expressing them. Since you have been very frank and forward, I will also. I think your expectations are much too high for our first attempt at changing our way of working. In fact, I think your approach in coming to this meeting should be more supportive. We really need you to take an agile leadership approach. Agile leaders are enablers. They are leaders that clear the path for their organizations and teams to do their best work. Agile leaders help the organization and team become great at self-organization. What you are doing right now is not clearing a path for us. It is not enabling us. You are not helping us to be better at self-organization. You are attempting to hold us accountable. But in Scrum, our team is responsible for holding itself accountable. We are fully aware we can't consistently deliver only 62% of the work we take into a sprint. My question for you, manager, is how do you think you can best help us? Manager one is taken aback, caught off guard. Manager doesn't respond. Manager, maybe you can start by learning about agile leadership. Here's a great introduction to agile leadership. There is an awkward silence that lasts for 20 seconds. Let's take a 10 minute break. Then we can return to finish the sprint review. Everyone, let's return at 25 minutes after the hour. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? How about that manager there and that managerial behavior? Managerial behavior. <laughs> I like to make up words. Define that further. Define that further, Nathan. <laughs> right. What did you? What do you? What do you mean when you say managerial behavior? Well, you know, we see this kind of command and control, hold you accountable. I define what success is for you type of approach from managers that the team experience here by the manager coming in to the sprint review and really trying to hold the team accountable to being 100% successful to an extent on their first sprint. On the first time they tried to work in a new way, the manager comes in and really tries to flex his muscles. You know, in an agile space, we don't necessarily want that type of behavior from a manager, especially the first time out. We want the team to have a little bit of breath and ability there to kind of find their way. We see this this behavior before the team is really even, you know, their first sprint in before they've had a chance to really find a groove. I think that was the thing that stood out for me the most. I kept having to bring myself back to the whole, this is their first sprint, right? What challenged my thinking was a high-performing team. And when I think of the high-performing team and what, what that looks like to me, I was like, I want a high performing team to be able to challenge the manager and I want the challenger to, the manager to be able to challenge back. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
that's something that you build and you grow. Right? Over you time. don't come out of the gate with it. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So what did you think about the, the way the PO, to your point, laws, the way the PO mm-hmm. and the scrum master challenged back at the manager? I was taken aback by that. I, I think it, internally, I expect the scrum master to be the champion of the team and to advocate for the team. Um, what I was taken aback by was the product owner doing it too. And I think what, when I was like, why am I taken aback by that? That should be good. <laughs> that should mm-hmm. be normal. And I think I was taken aback because it's not normal. Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't see that enough. And it made me think, why don't I see that enough? Why can't the product owner be a champion for the team and an advocate for the team too? If the product owner is also truly part of the scrum team as well mm-hmm. so that you know that that spanned a whole a lot of thoughts um well, in my so dig into that i mean yep. why were you taken aback why why isn't that something that you see play out in real life very often do you think you know i felt like there's so much of a, a negative type relationship between the product owner and team as i see in large organizations and not maybe not so much in the startup world though uh-huh. um, but more so in the larger organizations that there seems to be this push and pull more uh-huh. so between the product owner uh-huh. and the team and, a, and an uh-huh. us versus them type situation and i wonder what we we do a lot to form the team together as developers and qas and scrum masters and then it challenged my own thinking maybe we don't do enough to make the product owner feel a part of the team like they should advocate for the team and should be a champion for the team as well and that they are part of the team right i think that got lost somewhere i was talking to Mm. someone because you know having nerdy conversations is seems to be a really fun social specialty of mine but (laughs) i noticed that i was saying that when i learned scrum back in the day it was like the peanut butter and you're creating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich right Mm -hmm. so the product owner brings the peanut butter and the delivery team and scrum master bring the jelly and you don't have a sandwich if those things aren't together and that's that's kind of how i learned it and practiced it for a long time and somewhere Mm. along the road and i don't really know where but it that seemed to kind of drop off and Mm. we started focusing on well let's fix tech right let's fix Mm -hmm. delivery because it's really expensive and delivery is hardly ever either the time frame that we want it or the quality that we want it and so there just sort of became this attention and focus on well scrum and agiles for the delivery team and for tech Mm -hmm. and then i don't know what was happening with the business quite honestly and now all of a sudden there's this resurgence of project to product oh we got to get the business on board with this but i'm still not seeing that peanut butter and jelly sandwich as much as Mm. i used to way back in the day and to your point where where is that where'd the sandwich go right. um, yeah but there's these two yeah. parts and we're improving both parts but we're not improving them necessarily together nathan you you might get to pipe in this episode i don't know well, <laughs> it, it'll be tough but um i, I was going to share like you shared your experience at the beginning like back in the day when i was a product owner mm-hmm. for a while and i learned how to be a product owner first from the business that I work for. And it was more of a PO was to an extent a PM of the team. But where the team was there and there was this belief that the team kind of worked for the PO. And then I was assigned to a team as a product owner and it was a real agile team. And they quickly educated me on oh, the real re- relationship <laughs> of what was supposed to take place. But I think I think sometimes, to your point, Laws uh, mm-hmm. and Alicia, that the business sometimes thinks 
these business people are on these teams to get these teams working on their stuff and they're there to give direction almost in a PM type of way. I've seen that a lot in enterprises, but smaller companies that I've consulted with, I don't see that it is more of that peanut butter and jelly mm. thing. Why do you think that is so? What's mm. different about the smaller organizations? I'm trying to think in my head that when I when I reflect back to the first transformation I was a part of, the difference for us was in the waterfall environment, we had a project manager and then we had the development team, but the product owner didn't exist in that competency, in that, in that structure um, within that organization. And then when we made the transition and committed to doing agile transformation, they brought in all new talent for the product owner and embedded it on the team. And I'm wondering whether that's where our internal bias keeps playing into the path. You know what I mean? That we that we might already have a, a negative relationship with the business. And so it shows up even when we and, and impacts us in a negative way, even when we try to go move forward in a positive way. That us versus them. Is yeah. already a part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that you're probably right. Yeah. Mm. I think sounds... that is at play a whole lot. Definitely. Whereas a smaller company, they don't have a lot of overhead, right? And they're most of the time a startup by nature is focused on being lean right from the start, right? So they, you might not have product owners that exist that are converted from a previous role. Well, I think there's a couple things too along those mm. same lines. One is that you and I have both worked in quite a few startups, I think, but in a startup, the goals are clear. Don't mm. run out of money, and so right. and everything. So there's right. there's more of a concept of, or at least the startups I worked at, and there's more of a concept of those shared goals. Meaning, right. it's smaller. There's fewer communication paths. It's mm. usually, I'm not. I mean, startups are a hot mess, so don't get me mm-hmm. wrong. But but it, usually the goals are clear because there's fewer mm-hmm. of them, and and everyone's getting marching to the same one because nobody wants the company to run out of money, right? You got to keep right. money and you got to get customers, and that's really clear. Because right. it's it's just beast or famine at that point. It's the basics. And so I think that's one thing that might help. I think the other thing that might help is when there's high levels of dysfunction and startups come with plenty of high levels of dysfunction, it's so visible to everybody that you know where it's in the way. There's not layers to hide that visibility. It is just there out in the open and it either gets fixed or the company suffers. The correlation of a broken relationship leading to problems inside the small company, leading to the company not making their goals. You can see how those, what do they say? It lines, not dots, Nathan. Um, But you can, however you want to say it, you can see Mm -hmm. how the cause and effect of how that would play out for the company. I don't know. Maybe all those things are right. Maybe none of them are. I think they're all right to a degree. Well, that's because Laws and I are sitting here staring at you. Right. (laughs) You're outvoted, man. I'm outnumbered, yeah. (laughs) But you know tonight he's going to be hanging out with his friends saying, those ladies, they didn't know anything about what they were talking about. (laughs) Cannot believe I sat through that with them today. So I do wonder, is does the, the whole... FTE to contractor mindset also come into play there because I know that with my husband's company, he's in a smaller startup organization and I would say 75% of them are still contracted out and there is an us versus them. But I think going back to your point, Alicia, like for me, a lot of things come back to autonomy, mastery and purpose. I always seem to navigate back to that. And what you were saying, Alicia, it spoke to purpose for me, right? Mm -hmm. Why are we here? Why are we building this thing? Unless you have a purpose within the organization, 
then you feel like an order taker. You're, you're at risk for feeling like an order taker, right? Uh-huh. So I think that if I put the, my hat on as an FTA in a smaller startup, I have a purpose. I have a commitment. I have a buy-in uh-huh. to making the company successful, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Therefore, that shared objective and that intrinsic motivation is triggered in me. So therefore, uh-huh. I put more, invest more into my relationship with the other team now not other team, but the product owner and the scrum Uh master and the team as a whole. The other roles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe that shows up differently in a smaller company and a contractor, a high contractor ratio versus a large company and a high con. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder how much that plays a part in that picture too. Yeah. I'll look at where I took that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're right. I think it yeah. probably plays in a lot. And that, and that's making me kind of think about, we had talked earlier a little bit about the manager interaction mm. in this episode. And mm. Laws, you had said in teams that are starting out adopting Agile or Scrum or transforming that you like to see a healthy relationship between the manager pressure testing or pushing on the team and the team pressure testing, pushing back. And mm. this manager has a particular couple lines that say, uh, we've put a lot of effort into allowing you to explore Scrum um, we've invested at least a couple months into adopting it and or but is what I'm reading in there. We have a commitment to meet. Our customers expect us to deliver by a certain date. And so coming off their first sprint, this team, of course, didn't meet their commitments. And the, so the manager saying, how are you ever going to make the big picture if you can't make the smaller pieces that stack up to that bigger picture? And I wonder, gee, friends, have we ever experienced this? I don't think it's just fiction. And what's that interaction like in real life when you've got someone who who is in control of your paycheck making that kind of statement? I think this the statement, it triggered a lot of things for me initially, right? Like I was like, oh, that's uncomfortable as all hell, right? Like that's my instant reaction to it. But I, it actually started making me think about that whole, the mindset of praise in public and criticize in private, right? And, and then like that was something that was told to me from a very young age as an early professional, right? Is that in my early days and first role as any kind of leader in any organization, and, and it was in a call center, so it was way back, you know, that was what was ingrained into me is to do that. But then I'm like, it made me think that's where I was going at the start when we're talking about high performing teams versus new teams, right? I feel like in a high performing team, I want to get to the point where you don't have to do that in private, right? That you should be able to have a healthy discussion and healthy dialogue in the open and give that push and pull, right? But the uncomfortable part is it's a brand new team. But here's where I got torn up in this specific scenario is that in this particular situation, it it triggered a a defense, right? From the product owner and the scrum master, that was obvious, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, um, we want you to adapt an agile leadership mindset and we, do, we don't want you to hold us accountable in public like that, right? But in the same breath, are they not holding that leader accountable in that same forum in view of everyone else? They are. So that's where I struggled with that one. <laughs> well, that's a good point, Laws. I wonder if it's not the message, but it was the messaging, meaning it was kind of zingy, right? Both ways, frankly. The manager was zingy, the PO and the scrum master were zingy. And so I think the message was right, which was, okay, you had your first sprint. You got done some of what you wanted to do, but not all of what you wanted to do. Now, it's the first sprint, so 
come on, right? Um, right. That's what I would kind of say. But, but also how we have open conversations is just as important as having those open conversations. Meaning if the open conversations are zingy, that is not going to become a high performing team. And there's not going to be a lot of trust because it right. creates defensiveness. And Laws, you did a great job of saying, well, the PO and Scrum Master were obviously coming from a place of being defensive, right? In their response to the manager. And so I think the skill for teams and for organizations who are deciding to embrace this different way of working is it does take some muscle building to not only get comfortable having the conversations, but they, to get comfortable having them in the right way. Because no one right. likes to be zinged one way or the other. Yeah. At the same rate, I think the manager deserved a zing. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think the manager deserved a little bit of his own medicine there. He shows up at the first sprint. He's really critical. He's telling them you're you're only 62% successful. And he's basically telling them in, with data that they have failed, according to him, to, to an extent. I think he deserved a little bit of that back. And, I don't disagree with you. Sorry, yeah, I mean, Nathan. I don't it, mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, but and you're right. That you have to have the right conversation. I think. I think as we wrote this, I think I wrote this one. Oh, I you want, did because it says sixty-two point five percent. Yeah, the kind of math. Right. So clearly, that was. Yeah. yeah. Let me say, I totally agree with what you're saying about having the right conversations. I'm not getting defensive about this, but sometimes I think managers and people they need to get back sometimes what they give in the same way. And sometimes it levels things out. And then hopefully there's a moment where they all can kind of grow from there, hopefully. And I don't know. That's why I wrote it that way. That that makes absolute sense to me. But then I'm like, I do empathize quite a lot, actually, with leaders these days. From the frame of mind that I'm like, the team is learning as they're exposed to new challenges and new things each day, right? As they work together and collaborate together, they'll learn how to respond in a scrum fashion, right? What exposure is the manager getting? What training is the manager getting? It doesn't come from the instant reaction isn't so much from a place of defense. It, it's a, oh, they just don't have any training. <laughs> what am I gonna do for them? You know what I mean? It was zingy, words matter, but also, okay making sure that we have empathy for our leaders in these situations, because I have a whole bucket load of empathy for the team, right? And right. learning, but also applying that same compassion towards the leaders. I think sometimes that can get lost. That is such a good point because in this simulation, we didn't train or educate or workshop our leaders at all. We didn't even make reference to that law. So that's such an awesome point. Nathan, laws should come to all of these <laughs> and really just take over. <laughs> she laughs. You didn't hear her say like, yes. <laughs> there, was, there was sort of that uncomfortable giggle. Saying, I'm like, what? here's me hiding. <laughs> There's a hole down there. I'm going to jump in. <laughs> I'm so glad you were here today for this one. Because these, you, are, you definitely are um, teasing some things out of this episode that I didn't pick up on or I didn't sit with or it didn't resonate with me the same way. So I'm really, really glad you're here. Yeah, Nathan's on mute. <laughs> I don't think he realizes it. <laughs> I, I was on mute. Yeah. No, I agree. Glad you're here, Laws. I was happy to. It was funny when I was reading the script this morning, I was like, well, what would I do in that situation? I actually triggered a lot of, mo and then I was like, I said to Nathan, I became invested because I was like, well, let me Google that. <laughs> what, what, I, what happens in that situation? Mm -hmm. and, and would I even handle it the right way? It, it provoked that thought too. It was, I think this was a really good episode um, for reflection, right? 
for all of us. Yeah. How about the way the uh, scrum master at the end there decided to take a break, let everybody kind of cool off for a little bit, and then regroup and come back together after the exchange with the manager? Um, I've done that before. You've done hmm. that? As a scrum master and as a coach. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've done that too. Because sometimes you just have to call it out and say, yeah. well, we need to we need to go breathe a different some air <laughs> that's yeah. not right in this room because you just have to shake it off and collect your words. Right. Because some people right. aren't always so they need time and space to think through how they want to articulate things. Right. And, and they're not right. so quick on the fly. I think that was something that I actually focused on personally. My own development over the last year is being able to speak to things without having to um, hold space for 10 minutes and come back to you with an answer. You know, I like right. that collection your words that's yeah. well put but it also made me think that scenario was like what about event etiquette right <laughs> when we talk about the the ceremonies i was actually interested we all have our own etiquettes when it comes to the ceremonies events whatever we call them in the organization that mm-hmm. we're in and it made me like sometimes i can actually convert, provoke some some funny thoughts. Me personally, <laughs> I have three rules that I usually go by that I say that anything longer than an hour and a half and you need to feed me, just period. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not good if you don't. And then anything longer than six hours and I want a happy hour at the end of that, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> and then um, my third and final, which is usually really challenging for leaders that I say that if you take away any of my sprint events, I will take away your next Friday. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is I'm taking the next Friday off. Mm. Um, and, and that's the cost that you're going to pay for taking away one of my really key events that I need for the team huh. to collaborate together. Um, and that usually does challenge leaders, but it's more I do it in the spirit of is are you asking us to continue with hands to keyboard for the right reasons, right? Is uh-huh. there actual is there an actual business need or is that an internal reaction that you're feeling right, right now? Like a knee um, jerk or gut reaction to mm-hmm. right yeah. to, that mm-hmm. I, unless they're utilized 100 percent, I'm not getting value, you know, so that usually makes them think um, a lot about it. And I've had some managers say, OK, I'll give it to you. <laughs> and then most of them will second guess it. But at least it provokes that thought. So I, I was actually interested what you guys have. I don't have those, but now I feel like I need them. <laughs> right. <laughs> We need to have you attend. And I think Law's just outcoached office. both of us. I mean, Nathan. really. Jeez. I don't have any requirements like that for scrum events at all. I mean. Um, like when I think about the, the six hours or longer, I'm thinking more um, scaled events, right? Like, right. And, and then I'm also thinking about planning. Or even workshops, Laws. Right. Even right. workshops. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like you give them an hour break in between. Right. right. So they can go feed themselves or you right. bring food to them, <laughs> you know. But you give them room to do something right. besides because what is it? And I guess we're probably off track. So we're probably close to being at the end, Nathan. But <laughs> I think something in, is our attention span about seven or eight minutes before we start at best, before our brain shifts to something else and then can come back. But we'll just the brain will naturally dump out before it yep. reconnects. Is that about right? I've heard that before. I don't know what the science yeah. is behind it, but I've heard so it Mine's probably less than that at best, seven to eight <laughs> minutes. And so if you think about it that way, if we don't give people a space for their brains to totally disconnect, then to reconnect, you're probably losing a lot of what they, nah, the participants are losing what they can observe, parent, absorb. Holy cow, we must need a break. <laughs> Apparently I hit my seven to eight minutes. I cannot speak. <laughs> I need to go gather my words. I mean, I'll be right back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
Yeah. 45 is my limit. 45 minutes. 45. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 40 and I need a 15 minute break and then I can come back, feel refreshed and go for another 45. Right. Yeah. Laws, thank you so much. I do feel a little outcoached, so I'm humbled, <laughs> but happy to be humbled by you. Appreciate you being here. I don't know if we're going to invite her back here. <laughs> no. feel... She's not come back for episode 10. <laughs> Unless I'm reading the script, because that's fun. <laughs> All right, lady. Thanks Thank for, you coming. for having Thanks me. Thanks for coming to play today. I Bye. really appreciate it. Thank you guys for We appreciate come. it. Thanks, Lon. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. You are smart, lady. I miss working with you. So, Nathan, Laws had to jump off. But I, I know for me, kind of like when we had Chris join us, too, we might have asked, maybe should have asked for more of their time. There's some more I wanted to talk about. Because I think there's a lot happening in episode seven. And although we had great conversation with Laws, I want us to offer our many, many, many listeners a little bit more of our insights into this episode. I think both of our listeners will be excited. (laughs) (laughs) And we thank you, listener number one and listener number two. (laughs) We appreciate you being there. (laughs) We want to show we're we're going the extra mile. (laughs) We are. (laughs) So I... I think there's a lot of powerful messaging in episode seven that is a little bit maybe between the lines and I want to tease it out. And the first thing I think that's really powerful is the first sprint, if not the first couple sprints, don't typically go the way you want them to. So expectations are usually high. Energy is can can be high. But the thing is, it is so hard to figure out how to do all the moving parts differently that sometimes only one to three stories get done. I think the fact that this team did 60% of the work, as the PO pointed out, is, is actually pretty significant. Usually, I tell people to plan for less than 50%. You're trying to figure out how to make either a scrum board work differently or how to collaborate or how to work on one, what is it? Stop starting and start finishing. So instead of having three tasks and a high work in progress, you might just have one task at a time. And that's actually new and different for most folks. But you will always finish your sprint because they end. They last for a duration of time and then that's it. Right. What you learn in that first sprint or the first three sprints usually becomes such a springboard for how you tweak things and grow and learn to move forward that you can't bypass them, even though they feel usually pretty messy. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it works sometimes to take some pressure off the teams and let them know that those first three sprints are a bit of an experiment. They're learning how to work together. They're learning how to work at sprints. Um, they're learning all of the different uh, ceremonies or the, mm-hmm. sorry, the events in Scrum um, and what takes place at them. So, there should be a limited, a reduced expectation for the team to be really effective during those first three sprints. Mm-hmm. And generally after those first three, sometimes that's when the team has information about how they performed. And then they can actually kind of wave a stick and say, you know, these last three sprints we've been able to do, let's say four stories a sprint. I think that's a solid number. You know, let's look at that as possible capacity. I would say that the first couple sprints are all about learning. They are. If you deliver stuff, all the better. But I like to set the expectation that you have to give these folks room to learn. Yep. And it's kind of like being in the kitchen. If you've never cooked stuff and you're in the kitchen, you have to figure it out. You have to make the recipe before you know what works and what doesn't work. 
Yeah. Here, I, I'm always talking about food. I don't I know. understand. You're making me hungry. I know. Me too. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I, it's true, right? If you've never made stuff before, if you're all in a kitchen together and you have a recipe and you have to figure out, do the ingredients work? And who's going to do the chopping? And who's going to do the sauteing? And who's going to do the broiling? And who's going to plate the food? All of that, the best way to figure it out is to do it. And that's what those first couple sprints are about. Definitely. I, I typically, when I'm coaching a team, I actually give them about six sprints to you give them six. Oh, see, I'm not as yeah. nice. I give them three, three. Yeah. Well, three, but is we know you're nicer than I am. Well, you get well do you give them six before they get into a routine or do you give them three where mostly learning occurs and the next three start to become more about delivery? Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I'm with so, you. Yeah. Those first three, just learning. I, I want them to get comfortable trying. They're going to fail one or at least one out of three of those sprints. Most times they're going to feel like failures because they're, you know, they, they come in with these high expectations. Like, ah, I'm going to knock this out the buck. I think I got it. You know, in two weeks, I'm going to deliver this in two weeks. And it never works out that way. At least one of those sprints, it's something where they have to look themselves in the face and uh, admit that they didn't get there. But mm -hmm. after they have that track record of producing for those first three sprints and they've learned, they start to grow those next three sprints. So I, I always, you know, don't hold them accountable to their own expectations until around sprint five or six. Mm -hmm. That's when it comes together, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I told you today's agreeable. Day. Man, you agreed with me. This is like the third time today. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. It doesn't make you feel good. So speaking of being agreeable, what did you think about the PO coming in and, and start setting the tone by thanking the team for their hard work? Don't you wish all POs did that? I do. I had a yeah. PO who did that. Did you? Mm -hmm. Not every time, but she, she really approached her PO role. PA role. I don't even know what a PA would be. Uh, she approached her PO role as though she were a member of the team. And if the team struggled, she understood. She looked for ways to help them. She asked how she could help them. She realized that she had no product if the team couldn't function. So her job was to help the team function as well as they could in whatever, however she could influence that. She was amazing. She really was. And I think she would have walked in and said to the team on Sprint One, thanks. Yeah. No matter how it turned out, thanks for thanks for getting up to bat. It goes a long way just to say thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you for working hard. Yeah, when I was, you know, when I was a PO, I always said thank you to my. Did you? Did oh, you really? Yeah. Oh yeah, I couldn't do anything. Just like you said, I couldn't do anything. Right, you have no product if you don't. Right. If the team, mm -hmm. I have no product. I can't do the work that they do. They're assigned to work for me. You for know. you or with you? I said with me. Did I say for me? Or you said me? for. Mm. Well, they're assigned. Well, I didn't mean like I was the boss, but you know, right. sometimes teams come together and they're not self-organized together. Somebody tells them they have to be on that team. That's true. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm creating user stories, features that I want them to develop. They're doing some work with me, but to an extent it was also, for me to help me reach my business goals. I want to be as nice to them as possible mm -hmm. and respect the work that they do. We, you know, that's the team environment, respect their work. They respect me. We're all one team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was a little bit of an interesting dynamic, maybe with the manager who popped in the intention of a sprint demo or review versus a retrospective. 
Do you come across that where there's, while on paper, you can define them differently in real life. They sometimes get confused. The intention of them gets confused. They, yes, very much so, especially with management. Mm-hmm. You know, the sprint review, I guess, just in practicality, it's usually, in my experience, I don't know what your experience is, interested to, to know what your experience is, the sprint review usually only lasts a few minutes. My experience is we take a look at what happened during the sprint. We have a high-level discussion that doesn't impact the retrospective about what happened in the sprint. We discuss Mm -hmm. at a very high level why we might have been successful, why we might not have been successful, and um, look at burn-down charts and other metrics. And then that usually transitions into a retrospective. But not with the same audience, right? Right. So the the transition happens, but we invite folks who aren't part of the team to go ahead and leave. Right. Right. And the confusion, I think, comes with management and folks who aren't on the team is they come to the sprint review and they really want to ask questions and help the team identify how they can self-improve at mm-hmm. the sprint review. It is a little confusing, I, I admit, for management and others outside the team. And the author of this uh, particular episode did a great job illustrating that. Whoever did he? She did. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> What's been your experience with the sprint review? Um, I'm interested to know because all the sprint reviews, most of them, they're really short events. They don't last very long. I probably have had them last a little longer than you have, maybe 15 minutes all told. But there's there's a lot of conversation that comes up in them. So that maybe would extend it to 30, not usually beyond 30. I think it really has depended on the relationship between the stakeholders who were at the review and what their relationship is like with the team. Yeah. So I had one, it, not a particularly healthy organization. Well, the manager would come in and interrupt during the review, ask questions about he'd been technical. So ask questions about how it was done, how we wrote the code, how the unit tests were written. And oftentimes ask questions about, well, where's such and such that was in the future. And so the team felt as though what they did didn't count because he was always asking about why didn't this get included and why didn't this get included and what have you done on X that was for future sprints. And that that was a repeat behavior. That was really hard. I think the healthier organizations and the more mature organizations and mature on an agility scale have a lot of conversation at the review about how do we think this benefits the customer? Is there anything we need to change in the next sprint? Yeah. And that's that's where the reviews get to be a little meaty. And I, I think those are the most fun sprint reviews. When it's just a straight up show and tell and there's no conversation and feedback about it, it becomes kind of boring. Yeah. But when there's so that's something to watch out for when you're a new when you're a new team and particularly for scrum masters and even product owners. If the reviews are boring and there's no excitement around them, something's off. It's a bad smell. When there's excitement about the reviews, people aren't nervous about the reviews and there's a good, good conversation about what did we learn that we might need to change to benefit the customer? Not just how do we want to work differently, which is in the retrospective, but what did we learn about how this feature or story would benefit the customer? That's a more mature team. That's a sign of healthier, agile maturity. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you on your comment about being, you know, the reviews being exciting. I, I typically 
find that they are the teams, the business folks, everyone that has contributed to that particular sprint, they get excited if there's going to be a demo, some kind of demo at the sprint review. It doesn't always take place. A lot of teams that I've uh, worked with over the past few years, they do a demo separately, but the sprint review can get really exciting if there's going to be some dem demonstration there. Okay, I'm going to ask you then, what happens at the review if you don't demo? Because I've always treated them as the, I've always had demos at a review. Um, very little happens if you don't demo. Are you then just really talking about metrics? Just how metrics. many velocity, right. capacity, burn up, burn down, release, burn up, burn down, feature, burn up, burn down. All right. Yep. I cannot think of a time when I had a review that didn't include some sort of demo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It may be, um, how do I say this in the organization where I work, things are so disconnected mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, not integrated that demos take place throughout the sprint as soon as functionality is available because it's so hard sometimes to get on the calendar yep. oh, yeah. of, a, of a stakeholder okay or something yeah. like that so yeah. the demo so that the sprint review in many aspects just from my experience i realize i'm just talking about my experience mm -hmm. as a coach the sprint review has become just a thing where this is what happened at a very high okay. level Let's transition into retrospective. Okay. And the demo takes place three or four times throughout a sprint. No, I have that happen with a PO. The, the demo takes place with a product owner three or four times throughout the sprint. But we still try and include a demo with the stakeholders or that's offer a demo with the stakeholders at the review. Yep. Okay. That's a good point. And I think it's fair for folks to understand that if things are disconnected, there might not be a time to bring the stakeholders together, or that might yeah. be once a quarter if your organization's really big because yeah. folks, it's too hard to get it on the calendar. So that's that, but always to the product owner, always to the product owner, either throughout the sprint, like you mentioned, Nathan, or at the review. For sure. Okay. Hmm. What else about episode seven? about how the scrum master handle those questions from the manager? You mean pushback? Well, <laughs> pushback, trash uh, talk. Um, well, you must have been the scrum master then. Uh, <laughs> I think, so obviously this is a smidge, smidge artificial because we wrote it to get a point across. Mm -hmm. But I think the point that I would like to get across is it takes courage to push back. And it takes courage to push back and say to management and leadership, we need your support in a different way and we're going to hold you to that. And that's really what we saw the scrum master do here. Yeah. And I cannot think of a time as a scrum master when I didn't have to put on my cape of courage to go push back. And that's, I think this is a perfect example of a way that you might as a scrum master expect to have to push back on management or leadership. And that's your job is to stand up for the guardrails that Agile and Scrum present to make sure that we stay focused and we adhere to the values that are inherent in practicing Scrum and Agile. Yeah. I mean, it was a professional pushback. It was. Um, mm -hmm. The pushback was designed. Well, the PO's pushback, that was professional and very strong. It was. Mm -hmm. But it was still designed to bring that manager in to support and be part of the team and be part of the success. Right. It, wasn't, it wasn't a pushback to where it was like, I'm just pushing back 
it wasn't just a hard no. Right. Um, Cause it had an ask, right? The ask did. was in the statement. We really need you to take an agile leadership approach. Right. So that type of pushback, I mean, scrum masters who are comfortable doing that, um, who've been in, especially in the companies that are kind of bootstrapping their own mm-hmm. agile transformation, that is what we've presented here, I think is a really good example of how to pro- professionally present it, help educate the manager, and also help them feel like they are part of the team and they're helping the team in a mm-hmm. way. And help the manager make the transition. The team's making a transition. Management and leadership is making a transition as well. Right. Well, you're here for a lot more than that. You're the brains in this operation. Mm-hmm. You keep saying that. We might need to We might need to think about what kind of brains we need. <laughs> uh, now I'm kind of thinking back. I, I don't know that I have much more to add. You? Well, if the brain doesn't have anything else to add, I mean, what can I say after that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I could roll on and on, but I don't know that it'd be interesting or helpful. Our two I could, listeners I could might, pontificate. <laughs> our two listeners might like your pontifications. I don't, I don't know. I think they get. I think they get plenty. I don't know that they need an extended soapbox pontification. Well, let's see what happens in episode eight. Okay, let's do. All the music in our podcast is created by Gilpin Hill. That dude, now that dude is great. He can play some music. I'm telling you that. Mm-hmm. Chris Tolino, also known as Sweet Tony, also known as One Take Tony, is the voice actor on our podcast introduction this season. Chris also played the role of Manager One throughout the season. And Chris, we thank you for both. Special thanks to our friends Bay Hall, Lauren Harrison, Eric Harrison, Arnold Panjanaban, John Amaranjan, Margie Morse, Ryan Babbage, and Shrikanth Reddy, who were all script actors for the episodes in this season. If you are looking for exceptional Agile coaches, look no further than this collection of great people. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are available. We are Alicia, Yannick, and Nathan Chawilawuashe, the Agile Twins. If you have questions, comments, or ideas, you can connect with us at transformationsimulation.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.